Hey there, it's Pastor Evan here. Welcome to Unpacked. This is a new series, Unpacking Life as a Messy Human. We're exploring the soul and the strength that comes from the journey of trying to live life authentically. We hope you find it helpful and that you can see yourself in the conversations, the stories, and the interviews. Have a listen and subscribe. We're glad you decided to join us. And this week, we're talking to one of my all-time favorite people, Maureen Spidell. Maureen is a local psychologist, and she is seriously one of my absolute favorite people. We're going to discuss trauma, which is a bit of her specialty. But trauma is a challenging topic, and she's going to help us to define a little bit of what trauma means, what happens to the brain and to the body when it is triggered, and how we can identify it so that we can begin to work towards healing. We're ready to start. I'm, I'm excited about today. I am too. I, I am really intrigued by how our mind works and that sometimes there's some very, very simple things that can be done to help. It's exciting for me. I was reflecting why I was so excited. I think this is the start always. That's my belief is that when people are struggling with addictions, when people are struggling with anger issues, when people are struggling with, you know, relational issues, when people are struggling with parenting issues, like I can, you know, anxiety, depression, when they all go, I'm like, something started it, right? And it's not necessarily, and we'll talk about this today, it's not necessarily has to be this big, massive event, but sometimes it's little ones that happened over and over and over that kind of got dismissed. But when you really look into it, they're the seed that kind of grew this struggle that you're kind of growing with. I like it so much because I feel like I'm getting to the root of the issue. But before we get started, I'm hoping you guys will, you guys will do something with me. I wanted to do, I wanted to teach two things. So one of the first things I do with every client is we take some deep breaths. So I thought I'd start to take box breathing. So just look at the left-hand side of your computer, bottom left, and I'm going to say breathe in, and we're going to do that for the count of four, and we're going to breathe up as you trace your eyes up the outside, and then I'm going to have you hold your breath for the count of four, and then I'm going to have you exhale slow for the count of four. And then I want you to hold empty for the count of four. So I'm going to cue you and we're going to do that three times. Okay. I want you to breathe in. Hold. Exhale slow. And hold. And in. And hold. Exhale and hold. Last time in and hold. Exhale and hold. And now I want you to notice five things that you can see. And I'm gonna do it with you, Evan, and then I'll do the next one with Tara. So Evan, if you could tell me five things that you see. A picture of my family, my cell phone, a hard drive, my yellow notepads, 
I just have a whole bunch of cords <laughs> plugged into my, my awesome. It's making all this happen. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Terry, you're going to tell me four things that you feel, not emotionally, but kinesthetically, tangibly. So right now I can feel the chair underneath me. So four things that you can feel. Uh, the blankets on my lap. I can feel my headphones in my ear. I can feel my rings on my finger and I can feel the heating pad behind me. Evan, I want you to tell me three things that you can hear. So three things that you can hear, which might be a little bit tricky because you got headphones in. I can hear the heater under my desk. Somebody just flushed the toilet upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> so I hear the water running down the pipes. That's funny. And you can probably hear And your voice. voice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, Tara, two things you know to be absolutely true. It could be things like, I'm here in this room, my parents love me, whatever it is, but two things you know absolutely to be true. I'm physically present here right now. I'm loved by God. And then everyone take a deep breath. So those are two different techniques as ways to kind of bring yourself back in. Nice use of the computer screen too, like of the box. I like that. Okay. So today we do trauma. We talk about trauma. Tara and I were talking a little bit about this and we were talking about right now, it seems like in a lot of the things we're listening to, podcasts we're listening to, trauma has become kind of a pretty popular word. But maybe to start off, how do you define trauma? So trauma is defined as an overwhelming situation that triggers in us to do something. And it's our response that actually causes the difficulties later on. Big, I call them big T traumas. So the big T traumas are things when there's a catastrophic risk of your life. Okay. So if I opened the door and a saber toothed tiger bounded into the room, I'm going to go into my hindbrain, I'm going to go into fight or flight, my life is at risk, because this tiger could definitely damage me. So car accidents, it's not just loss of life, it's where something has been taken from you um, violently. So being sexually assaulted, or any of those things also is defined as a big T trauma. And then we have what we call small T traumas. And small T traumas are divided into two parts. But a small T trauma are those things that happened they're little, but they happen over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Okay. And so they're defined as active ones where you could be in a situation where you get yelled at, ongoing kind of hurtful comments. Um, if you were being bullied at school, um, being in a certain situation where there's a lot of control and it's not just short term, but it's repetitive and it happens a lot. And then there's the passive stuff, which is, again, I've talked about this before, but humans are, we're a pack animal. We, we work in communities, we work together, right? And we're meant to belong. And so patterns where something is taken away, where we're excluded or ignored or um, neglected, those types of things, we call those passive traumas. So when I look to diagnose somebody with PTSD or what we call post-traumatic stress disorder, it has to be one of those life or, or death kind of situations or integrity, something um, that's been put on from the outside. But when I, when I treat people, sometimes the traumas that they have are much more subtle 
the situation is one thing, but then what happens is that our, our body responds in, an, in, in a way to keep us safe. We usually find what I call, or what I look for is the first trauma or the root trauma. We usually, when we find that it happens under the age of six. So the big T traumas happen anytime, but when I find that repetitive trauma, it usually happens under the age of six where we don't always have, we don't have the power or the physical ability or adaptive skills necessarily to always get out of that situation. You know, someone, someone repetitively yells at me now, I avoid that person. But as a child, you, you can't always, your brain will quite naturally go into defense mechanisms. And so what, what happens when we're older and we've gained power or skills or abilities, when we're reminded of that initial one, we revert to using the same response. So when you say triggers, I'll give you two different definitions of triggers. So the first one would be that whole saber-toothed tiger. If I, uh, you know, if all of a sudden I felt it heard a noise outside my door and I opened it up and a saber-toothed tiger bounded into the room, that would be obviously a big T trauma. Um, and maybe I saw a flash of orange or I heard a certain noise attached to it. I might be walking down the street and all of a sudden I see a flash of orange. That would be the trigger that for about 10 seconds, I'm remembering being attacked by a saber-toothed tiger. And then my brain takes over and it moves me into fight or flight. And people are like, why are you running down the street? Because of caution yeah. flight, right? And you, you can get a long ways in 10 seconds. Right? And what's, <laughs> once our adaptive system kicks in, it takes a while for us to calm it down. It's doing exactly what it needs to do, which is keeping me safe. When we talk about those small T traumas, so let's say... As a young girl, I got yelled at a lot by my, you know, my, one of my parents. So my parent, my one parent would say, yell at me a lot. Well, I didn't always have the power. So I would freeze and I would not know how to use my words. Freeze is a natural defense mechanism. I'm literally trying to disappear until the problem goes away. So that keeps me safe. And the fact that I'm still here tells me, tells my brain that it worked. So then I might be in a heated discussion about money with my husband and his voice might go up and my trigger might be then to freeze and not be able to find my words. Mm -hmm. And again, it's a normal response. It kept me safe when I was a kid, but now I have to learn to do it different now that I'm an adult, which means I have to, I have to intervene in that 10 seconds. And you've learned it yeah. and you learned that it worked. So you think it should work again and again and again. Yeah. So, so when you, when you, how do you make your way then? So, so somebody comes in to see you. One of the things about trauma, right, is that it's often a deep, dark secret. Sometimes you don't even know it. One of the things we're learning is that dealing with trauma has to happen in connection. So the first thing I do when I meet with someone is I spend one, two, sometimes three sessions making sure that I have a connection with that person. And it's funny, when I learned the treatment approach that I use EMDR, which I know we'll get into later. When I learned it, I did two separate days. And the first one, I was in Edmonton um, with people I didn't know when we were practicing on each other. And I was like, I did not feel safe. I did not have a relationship with these people. I was guarded. I was not sharing. So I didn't really have like a super like impactful um, first session because you practice on each other, right? So I drove away and I'm like, wow, I just spent a lot of money on 
you know, that and I'm not sure it works. And then I went the second time and I transferred down to Calgary where I was with a group of people that I dearly love and trust. There are other therapists that I work with collaboratively all the time. And so we were practicing on each other and my experience was much different and it was because therapeutic rapport. So you have to have a relationship. So do you know, like when you're in the sessions after a few times that you have that with someone? For sure. You know who you connect with, right? Like Mm -hmm. we all have that scale. You know who you connect with and who you don't connect with. And it's that, that sense of I'm feeling you feeling me, if that makes sense. So I know when I say something, I can see in your face and your eyes that you're getting what I'm putting out there. We're, we're wired to connect. Yeah, I tell everybody when they first come in and, it, and it's the same with a lot of stuff. I said, I doctor shop, I dentist shop, you should therapist shop. So if I'm not the right person, let me know. Like I'll help you find somebody that fits with you because you need to have a good fit. Every time we've talked and whether we were talking about, you know, our very first time we talked about emotions and some of that kind of stuff, how emotions are information, all those things. We talked about addiction last time. Every time we talk, relationship and connection comes into play. Mm -hmm. It's not just, you know, good relationships are good for you and you have more fun and you feel like you can be yourself more. They actually, what I've been finding interesting is this theme of they are the healing work. Like they're the tool that's used to do the healing work. And you can do EMDR and other things Mm -hmm. to techniques to help. But at the end of the day, it comes down to, do we have a connection or don't we have a connection? And what does that look like? What happens when they get to your office? So, so you work to create a connection. Yeah. And then what? Then I, I, I start to get to know their story. Once they feel safe enough, you just tease it out. Lots of different things can be used to treat trauma. Different modalities can be treat, used to treat trauma. We use acronyms a lot. <laughs> And so there's, you know, treatments called DBT, which is dialectical behavioral therapy. There's ART, accelerated resolution therapy. There's CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. The one I use is... Oh, wait, CBT or CBD? Just check. <laughs> well played, well played. <laughs> cognitive behavioral therapy. There you go. And then I use EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. That's when we start to, when when the person starts to realize that they've had a negative, you know, what we're starting to tease out is what's the negative thing you believe about yourself when it's not going well or when you're triggered? Because they'll be like, you know, lots of times I function fine and people don't realize there's a problem. And then all of a sudden something happens and then I've just got, you know, I get angry or I get scared or it, it, those, those emotions start to push me around and I, I'm not in charge of them. They become in charge of me, you know, and I use my hand brain, if you don't mind. So the palm of your hand, that's your hind brain. I call it the lizard brain. And that's the part when the saber toothed tiger jumps in the room, takes over and it does fight or flight. It does anything we need to survive. And then my thumb is your limbic system. And your limbic system is a whole host of organs. The two that I talk about the most, one is the tiny little almond shaped organ called an amygdala. And it's the one that pushes out the emotion and tells us what to feel. But it does that while it's working with this backward shaped three organ that's called the hippocampus. And so the hippocampus is vital in remembering everything that happened to you before you were two. 
So what do you remember before you were two? The correct answer is everything, but it's, it's a different kind of memory. So we have two different kinds of memory. We have explicit memory, which is what we think about all the time. So I remember when, you know, I was four, my horse bucked and I fell off and I cried and I had stubble all over my stubble scratches all over me. And my dad made me get on the pony again, which I'm so grateful. But I remember that happening to me. The other type of memory is what we call implicit memory, where we just know. So let's say in a non-masked world, we go to Costco And you come around the end of the aisle at Costco and you see somebody that you haven't seen for a long time, but you dearly love them. Like they're just, they're just someone you've connected with. And as soon as they see you, they burst into an ear to ear smile. How do you feel? I feel warmth. I feel excitement. Why? They just bared their teeth at you. Mm. You learned that from repetition over and over from your parents coming into your room when you were upset and they picked you up and they snuggled you and they fed you and they changed your diaper and they cared for you and they loved you and they played with you and they read those books. So you recognize that those facial features and that facial response is someone who cares about you. You don't remember any of those things. They structure the way you view the world. So I remember the very first time I was learning how to do therapeutic rapport in an interview. So when someone comes in, I have to find out as much as I can about them, but I also have to develop therapeutic rapport, right? And I remember the whole class is watching me and I'm interviewing this girl in my cohort that I don't know super well. And so I'm supposed to get all this information. So I'm asking questions and I'm thinking and I'm trying to, you know, do it right. And she's evasive and avoidant kind of belligerent. And now I'm starting to get frustrated and irritated. And finally, my professor comes over to me and she whispers in my ear and I'm like, thank God, she's going to give me the magic question that's going to work. And she goes, smooth out your brow. And I'm like, that's it. All right. So I just worked on evening out my face and it got better. It didn't get great, but it got better. But what was fascinating for me is after it, the girl that I was interviewing you know, flipped her head and said to my professor, what did you say to her? Why did it feel better after you talked to her? And so my professor goes, good job, Maureen. Like that was exactly what needed to happen. What did you do? And I'm like, I smoothed out my brow. And the girl's like, that's it. So it was the next day and she comes up to me in class and she goes, I finally figured out what happened. She goes, I grew up in a really abusive relationship and I would get yelled at a lot. And my dad did this. Hmm. So of course, without understanding was a trigger for her. And she became evasive and avoidant and belligerent. She was trying to protect herself. Hmm. Very, very, very interesting. How, How aware of yourself then you have to be. So that hippocampus remembers all of those memories that happened to you before you were two most until you were six. And then as you get older, they remember less and less and less. And and more memories are sent to what we call the long-term storage area, which is your prefrontal cortex. And that's when your brain goes, okay, we might need that in the future, but we don't need it in the instant access part. So impulses from, from all your senses kind of come in here and then they decide if you can respond, which is your prefrontal cortex. So your prefrontal cortex is the one that's like, hmm, That's interesting. I wonder how I'm going to handle that. When something happens in your limbic system, what happens is that it's just that instant and you can go into react mode. Something happens and you can go into fight or flight 
But if that's starting to cause you problems, that's when we need to employ methods to bring everything down, to use your vagal nerve, to bring everything down and then turn on that prefrontal cortex so you can respond the way you want to rather than react in the way that used to keep you safe. So I was reading this. I thought I would read it for you and see what you think. And, and I think it'll, it'll help us here as we kind of make our way into the next step. Trauma is when you go through an event and something in you takes a picture of that feeling. Oh, yeah. And the unfortunate byproduct is that's how you've learned how to cope. But typically everybody else sees it. It's you that doesn't see it. It's one of the, yeah. the blinders that are up. Yeah. One of the things that I do in EMDR is I, I tug on memories. When, when that first memory happens, your brain kind of freeze frames. It takes that picture and it remembers mm-hmm. everything you saw, heard, people, places, smells, locations, all of those are kind of there. And, and that is an event is one thing, but when it's repetitive, the other events might have different people, places, smells, locations. And so those things layer on and layer on and layer on so that we have lots of different triggers for the same negative belief about yourself. And so one of the things we do to find the first memory is we tug on them. They have that snapshot. I asked them to, to, to bring up the last time they had a hard time with feeling really sad or really anxious or really angry. One of those ones that are, are they're, they're struggling with. And then we tug on the body sensation. So maybe they feel like a pit in their stomach or a heaviness in their shoulders or something in their throat or their heart is heavy. And we tug on that. And it's, it's always amazing how the memories just come until all of a sudden they're like three or four and they're like, yeah, that's, that's the memory. That's where it started. And then that's where we start our work is at that memory. It's called a float back. Hmm. That, that's so funny that you'd, you'd, bring, you'd bring up how important that is because I was listening, uh, this was sometime, several months ago to a mm-hmm. podcast and the, the psychologist on the podcast said, we feel certain things in our body. And he was mm-hmm. describing, I was baffled. I, I literally, I, was, I pressed pause, I rewind this <laughs> podcast. I'm like, I'm going to listen to that again. And we've already talked about how I want to touch sometimes I think yeah. I am with some of these things. I re-listened to it again and I was like, no, he said, in places in your body, you have certain feelings. I've, you know, rolled that around in my brain for a little while. I come into the house and I say to Kristen and Caroline who are home, I was like, so you just heard the strangest thing. And I say this, apparently you feel certain things in your body. And both of them went, huh, that's strange. So I decide I'm going to call my friend who feels everything. And I tease her a lot about it. You probably are guessing who it is right now. And I say, Tara, do you know where you have certain feelings? And she just goes, yep, I feel this here and this in my gut and this and this is where fear is. And she, <laughs> she lists off all these things. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't do that instinctively. So you do not- that instinctively. You're not aware of it instinctively. Yes. Yeah. So I'm going to blow your mind a little bit more because that's my favorite thing. (laughs) So there's this thing called your vagus nerve that starts in your brain and it goes to all of your major organs in your body. So it goes to your eyes. It goes to your ears. It goes to your heart. It goes to your throat. It goes to stomach. So (laughs) intestines, everything, even like right down into your rectum. It's got connections everywhere. And we always think of our brain telling our body what to do. But in actuality, 80% of the communication between your body and your brain comes from your body. And you think about it when you think about like you feel emotions, humans do feel emotions. We talk about our heart dropping. We start talk about feeling that lump in your throat. So if I have a client in my office and they talk about there's a lump in my throat or I see them going, 
what could you not say then that you want to say now? Oftentimes it's because there were words that wasn't safe to say back then. So they've learned not to say it, but they're, they're, they're wanting to say it. Does that make sense? You know, we're just learning about what the vagus nerves does, but yeah, it's our, our body and brain. They're, they're one organism, right? We're one organism. EMDR uses eye movement to calm the body down and teach. So we, we actually, in EMDR, we bring up that, that the trauma that we're working on, whether it's, you know, an image of being yelled at, or it's an image of being hit, or it was some of those big traumas like car accidents or whatever, what, whichever one we're working on, we bring it up and all those emotions and body sensations, our brain goes, oh yeah, I remember that. And they all get activated. And then the eye movements and the connection with the person that you're working with helps your body learn, I don't need to keep this in my high activation area anymore. I can send it to long-term. So when you have a trauma like that, what you're saying is it doesn't go to the forefront. It doesn't go to your long-term memory. It's in your short-term memory and it just is- No, it's in your limbic system. Oh, limbic system. Yep. And it's in a sense creating havoc there. Instant access to your flight or flight response. So let's say I have a heated argument with my husband. Okay. Let's say I had it just before I came here. We had a big argument about the kitchen renos that we want to do. Right. And we're disagreeing and budgets or whatever. And we're yelling at each other. That didn't happen by the way. I'm just using as example. So I might come in and I'm activated and I might be go, and then he did this. And then he said this. And I'm, I'm very, it's very visceral. I feel it everywhere. Right. But then while I sleep, we go through periods of sleep where we go through rapid eye movement sleep. And that's where we believe one of the functions is to decide for the brain to decide if we need to keep that memory or not and where we need to keep it. Very interesting. So, so this is a way then, uh, so EMDR is a way that in the midst of trauma is a way of pulling out parts of the story so that you can look at it here. There's a part of your brain that says you can look at it kind of arm's length kind of. And then process the the feelings that you have picked up from it. Yep. And not being alone when you're doing that. Interesting. Okay. Right. So yeah, in, in session, we bring up those memories and I do what's called bilateral stimulation, which is often eye movements where we help people move their eyes. Um, Sometimes um, we do tapping Um, just again, we're stimulating that vagal nerve on parts of their body on their hands. It just depends on, on how old the person is and, kind of instinct sometimes what's going to be the most most comforting because what's the first thing you do when you pick up a baby you, you rock yeah yep. jump them up you and move. down yep exactly <laughs> and what's you move. so instinct what's so interesting to me is that every mom rocks to the rhythm of her heartbeat I don't know about men because the study has not been done on men so there's just so many levels right mm-hmm. like this is something like Anytime I watch something else on trauma, I'm like, oh my God. And it blows my mind yet again. I have a question for you. How do you know if you've experienced trauma? And then how do you as a counselor decide what treatment? You said a little bit of it is instinct, but are there certain things that make EMDR a right fit for people? I, we use something that's called literally symptoms. So self-report symptoms of disturbance. So when we're tugging on memories, if it's disturbing, it's been some form of a trauma. And it's, again, it's how our body adapted to the event. That's the trauma behavior. People can go through things and because 
of a whole bunch of different circumstances, it might not be trauma. I walk with people sometimes while they're dying and to go yeah. to the hospital and be present with them and their family. And I have done that many times. It's not that it's not sad at times and yeah. all those kinds of things, it's but I wouldn't example. say that it's overly traumatizing for me because I've, I've been down this road before. Yeah. Whereas I, I definitely would say for people who I care for who have experienced it one time and or maybe it was their loved one, that there are moments where definitely they're describing trauma. Like it is a very different experience to care for somebody who's lost a loved one to cancer, even young, mm -hmm. and someone who's lost a loved one to a heart attack. And I, I've said to people, and this has been helpful, it's been helpful language. It's like, it seems to me that you've experienced some kind of emotional whiplash. A key thing would be to not panic and to recognize that this, this too is going to calm down enough that we can look at it. And, and so trust the people or trust the nurse that's telling you or trust the, the pastor even or the council, whoever it is that you're with. And how do we help a person who's listening to unpack today, like listening to this podcast? How do we help them to say, you know, what they're talking about is something I, I should probably pay attention to. Maybe I need help. What I would say is, do you have themes in your life where you respond in a way that later you're like, why did I do that? That isn't like me, how I usually am. I don't know why I made such a big deal out of that. I don't know why that, I don't know why I couldn't say what I wanted to say in that moment. And so I would say if, if those kinds of things are happening, that would be a starting place because that's when your adaptive child is responding rather than your adult self. So, so that's one sign, right? That that's a helpful thing. It's like, I'm acting out of character or why did I do that? So my husband was really helpful. I'll, I'll do a self-disclosure here. My husband was super helpful a couple of years ago because he was um, going on a boy's trip and I got grouchy around whenever he was kind of going off and I was irritable and snarky. And I'm glad, I'm glad he's going out and having an adventure. I think, you know, I like going on adventures with him, but I also know that this was something he was super stoked to do that I, I wasn't super fussed about, you know, usually I'm pretty like, Oh, tell me all about it. And I was like, talk to the hand. I don't want to hear about it kind of thing. And uh, finally he's just like, see you acting this way. I don't understand. Like, what do you need? Why? And I said, I don't know. I don't know why I feel like this way. Just give me a minute. I'll figure it out. And he's like, okay. Because uh, I'm going to bed. When you figure it out, let me know. What can happen in relationships is you can trigger my inner child and then my response triggers your inner child. And then we got two children like duking it out. And yes, yeah, that's when it gets messy, right? So I was really glad he was able to stay calm enough. And so I was really sitting there thinking and trying to figure it out. And then I understood I have abandonment in my past. Long story short, um, my bio dad at a really young age was then no longer in my life for a while, which as a young kid, you can understand there's an attachment there that's broken. And that can happen through death, that can happen through divorce, that can happen through a whole bunch of different reasons. Um, but so when he's going out and having fun without me, there's this sense of abandonment there. That's my work. My work is on that abandonment piece. If it's those kinds of things, when other people call you on it and they say they see it, or all of a sudden afterwards you reflect and you're like, that was a way bigger reaction than I needed, you know, or this always happens where I feel overwhelmed and teary and I can't stand up and say, you know, what I really want to say. That tells you that your adaptive child is taking over and we need to figure out why we need to be kind to that adaptive child. They kept us alive. 
but we need to find out why they still think they need to be in charge for those periods of time. I like that language, adaptive child. And that yeah. we take care of children. We still take care of children. Yeah. That's all, even our, the one that's here inside yeah. of me. Yeah. When we do EMDR, we take, we don't hate that part of us. We kind of celebrate that, but we also honor that they shouldn't have had to have that happen to them. How profound or how important is that for, for you to say or identify, you shouldn't have had to have that happen to you, to the, to your clients or the person in front of you? Because I, I would say that that's an aha moment when I'm able to say that wasn't right. That or, to me is a, a huge piece because I hate to use the narcissism word because narcissism right now is this huge buzzword and then, and then, so I need to be cautious with that, but kids are essentially much more nar- narcissistic than adults. They have to be to survive. If a child was worried, if a baby was worried about their parents, not getting enough sleep, they wouldn't wake them up <laughs> to get fed. So yes. it's essential right? Yes. that, that they're the center of the world. It's essential. And that's natural and normal because then they grow up through adolescence into becoming adults when they realize their needs are equal to other people's needs. And that's the process of going through adolescence. But when trauma happens to you so young, the child often blames themselves. So one of the first things I say when I have a young child in my office whose parents are divorcing is it's not your fault because we always try to find out reasons why. And so when a child is young, it's often because of themselves. I'm bad. I'm not good enough. I'm stupid, right? I'm not capable. Like I can go on with all these negative beliefs Mm -hmm. and we have to go back and honor that time and help the adult self, let that child Mm -hmm. self know that it it wasn't their fault. Yeah. Yeah. So in a way you are retraining that retraining the inner child you know, yeah. the, the child that's there and kind of going, that feeling was real and it protected you, but it's not anymore. It's not helpful anymore right now. We move it to a different part of the brain where it's not in the high traffic zone. So we can pull it out if we need to, and we can talk about it, but it's not in the high traffic zone where our whole body responds to it. Very, very good point. Okay. So they identify they're acting out of character. So I always find doing EMDR first. Sometimes that's, that's enough. And then sometimes it's enough that people have the time then to learn how to do something different in the, in the moment. Yeah. Right. So then that would be the next steps of like, yeah. Okay. And that's when we talk about, you know, how to, you know, how to calm your body. And, and I can't focus enough that one of the first things that we do is when that trauma and all that emotion comes up, we experience it. And then we teach the brain that we can calm down and look at it. But I can't do that unless we bring it up and you practice that. People might get activated in my office and there's a variety of things that I'll try and do to help them calm down so that then they can move into the part of the brain that looks at it. Yeah. And it must be incredibly, well, first of all, I imagine that anyone leaving your office after doing this exercise must be exhausted. Yeah. And, but it also must be incredibly rewarding. Sometimes people ask me, when does, when do you feel like God is most at work when people come to see you? And, and I've, I've started to say to them, it's at, it's at the moment where truth is shared, but I want people to hear. And I always put this caveat on there that it's like, truth isn't always good. But truth can be really, really hard. And so when we take a story, for example, when we take a traumatic experience and we start looking at it, whether it's through EMDR or how, whatever process you get to that, and we start unpacking that and looking at it. But being willing to 
with God's help, experience truth is a profoundly moving and important part of what the next step might be. So Henry, Henry Nouwen is an author I like to listen to. He wrote a book one time. He talks about hospitality and he says, you know what, until you're able to embrace your inner Hitler, so what he, is how he talks about it. That being that you in the certain circumstances in your story, in your past, could come to be capable of the worst kinds of atrocities. Until you're willing to accept that as a human, you, that could happen. You Wrong circumstances, let's say wrong circumstances, could lead you to come to believe that genocide was oh. the right answer. Until we're able to accept that, Evan, with the wrong series of events, I could come to do and be that which I hate. Until I can do that, I can't be fully hospitable to people who are not like me or who see the world differently than I do. So when we speak truth, as ugly as it is sometimes, that's the beginning of, mm. of what healing really looks like. Um, so anyways, so much uh, challenging things today to think about, like so many things around trauma. It would be great if we could just cover quickly is what is the result of dealing with your trauma? Like what is the healing experience? So why would you want to address this? Oh, that's a good question. Because then it gives you more ability to respond the way you choose to, rather than how you instinctively used to do to stay to stay safe. You can choose to still act that way. It's not like you take it away, but it gives you more power over that, right? It gives us that 10 seconds to think about how do I want to handle it? If we no longer think that we're not good enough, it, it gives us the ability to use our voice to, to say, you know what, what's been happening in this office for the last three years, it's not okay. And it has to change. Sometimes it gives us our voice. Sometimes it gives us the ability to not be pushed around. Some, it just gives us more choice on how we choose to, to handle situations and to mm -hmm. be in relationship. Yeah. Even, even like what came to mind when you're talking about that is even to take responsibility for the mistakes, Yeah. right? Like yeah. if, if you've, if yeah. you've properly worked through your trauma and you, you, you lose your mind on somebody, you're responsible yeah. for that. Yeah. And you, you're responsible for it either way. Yeah. Whether it's you, you triggered and your trauma, you know, your trauma spoke or you're right. You're, you're responsible for it either way, but will you accept responsibility? Yeah. And do something about it. Right. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, could be going back and saying that that was out of line. Yeah. yeah. So you can be yeah. free too. And my experience would be that people who act out of, of out of their trauma, um, they often aren't willing to take responsibility for what, what they've done. Or take too much responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Both. Right. I have to tell you before we end up, I am so grateful for the way that you share your day off with us and that you share all of this incredible stuff that you have learned in, in all of the, the life experience you've had, but also your, your practice experience. I, I really do think um, it's making a difference for our community and for those who are listening. And I, I'm appreciative. Thanks so much for who you are and the way you, you work in our community. It's, it's a big deal. Thanks so much. Have a and have a, yeah. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs>